Hey listeners, June Thomas here. If you like Outward, you should check out Uncover from CBC Podcasts. For the past five years, journalist Justin Ling has been reporting on cases of gay men who mysteriously vanished from Toronto's gay village. Despite calls from the queer community to investigate a possible serial killer, police insisted there was no evidence of foul play. They turned out to be very wrong. This season of Uncover the Village follows a string of unsolved disappearances and murders among gay men in Toronto dating back to the 1970s, shedding light on the systemic issues that have kept the queer community vulnerable for decades. This is episode one. How can you not see this? You can listen to the rest of this series of Uncover right now on your favourite podcast app or wherever you get outward. Maybe you've seen the headlines. In February 2019, Bruce MacArthur appeared in a Toronto courtroom. He was sentenced to life in prison for killing eight men. MacArthur's conviction answered some questions. Painful questions. Ones that had hung over Toronto's queer community for years. But it also reopened old mysteries. Mysteries that go back decades. To a time when being gay meant being a target to when the community had to defend itself because police wouldn't. When the closet was, for many, just a safer choice than coming out. To a time when queer people were winding up dead, and their killers were getting away with it. Our story starts in 2018. Okay, this was a green yard. With flower beds. This is the section in the middle that they tore up last winter and dug down a few feet. Took weeks. And of course, they don't call this Pottery Road area for nothing. The ground is rock hard. It's a sweltering day in August. I'm in the backyard of a tucked away house on a quiet street in Toronto. The back here was all green until they came two weeks ago. You can imagine the mess that it made. Karen Fraser lives here. She is an unlikely central figure in this whole story. She's showing me her garden, or at least what's left of it. Nothing left on the side of this hill. I've known Karen for the better part of a year. She's slight. She has a head of swept back red hair, big brown eyes, and an oddly endearing sense of humor. That is what kept her sane, I think, throughout this whole horrifying ordeal. We have deer who come. I don't know if they'll come now. Her secluded backyard slopes down to a pair of railroad tracks. Beyond that is a deep ravine. It's a leafy hideaway in the city. It's also the perfect place to avoid being noticed. So that was our compost pile in the corner for leaves in the fall, and apparently it had things. Mm. And then over around here, we'll have to uh, look over this edge. It's where the major... Just a month before, investigators were here, combing through her yard, her garden, and the wooded ravine below. They sifted through the dirt and the soil one bucket at a time, 
painstakingly looking for clues. It would become the largest forensic investigation in Toronto police history. They scoured it, basically. Scoured it all the way down. Oh yeah, but they didn't find anything back here in the end. They did. They basically all over the yard. Oh jeez. We had a lot of lilies and tulips. That's what's left of the lilies. Oh. Karen is trying to help me picture her yard as it used to be. There were flower beds and big, colorful stone planters. And uh, with tulips and daffodils along there, lots of periwinkle. I like it because it starts very early in the spring. You get something. All of this was designed and maintained by her faithful gardener, Bruce. And he took good care of it. It was quite lush and... Bruce had his run of Karen's backyard. He was conscientious, uh, very professional, very talented, very kind. Their families had known each other for years. We got a call from Bruce's sister saying that her brother had just purchased a gardening business. And she said, I understand you have a double garage and you're not using it. So simple arrangement. Sure, he could store his things in our garage if he would cut our lawn when we went away on the weekends in the summer. And over the years, he expanded. He decorated all the pots on the property, he gave us things at Christmas, you know, it just, it grew. It was never social, it was just a nice working relationship. Simple, not complicated. But it wasn't a one-man job. What do you remember about the people who would lend a hand when he was landscaping your place? Uh, many of them were obviously newcomers. Some were quite shy. Most we saw once, sometimes just uh, a head of hair going by the window holding up two hanging baskets. We didn't actually meet them at all. I think of all the men who met the horrible fate. I know I met one. I think I met a second man one time. Uh, very shy, stared at the ground, and Bruce and I were bantering back and forth, and I could see that the man he had with him was staring at the ground and laughing because he found it funny. The second man, I really felt sorry for him. He was off to the side, and Bruce was annoyed with him. and said, he's just not going to work out. And since all of them appeared to be amateurs or, or very new, I didn't know what this poor man had done. His clothing was not as nice as many of the other men. And I felt badly because he seemed to be really trying, had no idea what he was doing. And about a month later, I sent Bruce an email and said, so how did your new man work out? He didn't respond and it was never mentioned again. Memories of these men stick with Karen. She tells me she had forgotten their names and their faces for years, but now she can't stop thinking about them. All because of what happened on a cold day in January 2018. It was about 10.30 in the morning. There was a severe pounding on the door, so I came down expecting a delivery and looked to the street, and I turned, and there were 
two men in navy blue, and one of them said, are you Karen Fraser? Are you Karen Fraser? You've got five minutes to get out. There's been a serious crime. Bruce MacArthur has been arrested. My name is Justin Ling. This is Uncover the Village. I'm an investigative journalist, and I've always been on the lookout for stories that have been passed over or forgotten. And four years ago, I started working on a story that was both. Didn't look good. People just don't disappear. Car was located but he was nowhere to be found. It's, it's kind of like, uh, I, I feel terrorized. A string of queer men of color had gone missing from Toronto's gay village between 2010 and 2012. For a time, fears of a serial killer stalked the village. But the fear faded away. The police closed their investigation. The media moved on. Still, those disappearances nagged at me. This was personal. This was my community. It started to become clear that their sexuality and their skin color made them easier to forget, easier to write off. But I never imagined where the investigation would go, just how awful it would get. This is a story about missing men, yes, but it's about so much more than that. It's a story about homophobia and violence against marginalized people. It's about a community that demanded answers and didn't get them until it was too late. Toronto's gay village is only about three city blocks. The main focal point is the intersection of Church Street and Wellesley Street. It's not hard to notice that you're in the heart of gay Toronto. There are pride flags hanging from shop windows and telephone poles. And as you walk up Church Street, there's a bronze statue of a dapper man with a flowing coat and a walking cane. And then there are the 20-foot tall poles. They're decked out with giant rainbow spirals. And on the top is a shimmering disco ball. They're supposed to welcome everyone to the church in Wellesley Village. They are incredibly gaudy. The gay village has been around in one way or the other since the 1960s. Early on, there was just a few discreet bars, and then there was the gay-friendly travel agency, and then the clothing stores. Queer as Folk, a TV show that ran in the early 2000s, was set in Pittsburgh, but filmed almost entirely in the Church and Wellesley village. For lots of people, the village is a sort of refuge. There's plenty of village residents who were born outside of Canada, but who have adopted it as their second home. Others are expats from small town Canada, like me and like Joel. I started seeing him around the local pubs on Church Street. He was kind of a loud character and so am I, I guess, so that's kind of why. Joel Walker came here in 2008 from Manitoba. He is a very vibrant person. He was constantly laughing. He's talking about his friend, Skandaraj Navaratnam. Everything was hilarious in life. I loved him for it. If I was in a bad mood, uh, he would draw it out of me and, and immediately I'd be fine. And to his friends, he was just Skanda. He had come to Toronto from Sri Lanka, where he had fled a decades-long civil war. 
he lived just outside the village and had a wide circle of friends. Skanda is the same man Karen Fraser remembers standing in her garden years ago. Like so many people in the village, Joel and Skanda were transplants. Um, we started playing pool avidly together. Um, that was something we did as a hobby. And I was, I wish he was here to hear this, giving him lessons because he sucked at first. <laughs> and uh, I'm an all right shot, but um, he came a very long way, very fast. And he was, then he started beating me. And it was, it was like a, the teacher um, getting beat by the student is a really good feeling. And, and so like we bonded really majorly over the game. It's kind of funny, but... Is it possible he was a shark that he just you know, tricked I, you into thinking I, he was no good? I wish I could say so. <laughs> I wish I could say so for his family to hear, but no, he was not that good. And I handed it to him every time. <laughs> so where would you go at? You said you saw him in kind of the same couple of pubs. You know, what, what bars um, would those Zippers definitely was our main spot. Zippers was a community institution. Some nights, it was a piano bar. Others, it was a dance club. But on Sunday, it was Retro Night. Retro Night was a sort of Sunday service. It was a mix of those who came of age in the 70s and 80s, dancing alongside 19 and 20-year-olds who had just come out. If you didn't get there early, you'd be stuck waiting in a line that would sometimes wrap around the block. But Zippers was also a place to just shoot pool with friends. There's another pool hall right on Church Street, and I can't remember for life me what it's called. Is it the one upstairs? Yes. Pegasus? Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Horses, horses. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, yeah. Pegasus, though, is still open, with four large pool tables in the back and cheap pitchers of beer every night. As they spent more time together, usually playing pool, Joel and Skanda became increasingly close, but they never dated. They weren't each other's type. Like me and him had no interest in each other. He was into something completely different than I was, and I was too. I mean, I uh, sure I, I found him attractive, but I I loved him like a brother. I never ever looked at him a different way. And from Skanda was tall, dark, and lanky. You couldn't miss him. So he was pretty unique. He was a unique style. Absolutely. Like he was very fashion forward. He had a lot of jewelry. He wore jewelry on every rings on every finger. Uh, multiple rings, like two to two to three sometimes on each finger. It normally sounds way over top gaudy, but for him it worked. With his nationality, I didn't see anyone that dressed like him. He dressed like a part of our culture, but the part of his culture with a part of his own mix. Hmm. I love fashion a great deal, and so it inspired, it always inspired me to like one-up one him. <laughs> but I didn't have enough fingers or rings to do it, so... <laughs> He was definitely into an older gentleman type. He had a name for them. <laughs> it was called uh, Silver Daddies. <laughs> that was his thing. He was very intrigued and attracted to them. And every one of them I ever met was fine, except for one. And that person was very, very jealous and very, very obsessive and, and controlling. And who was that? And that was Bruce MacArthur. So... How often did you see Bruce MacArthur around? He started coming around when Skanda was out later at night. He was there every time. But he never went to the normal bars when he was with Bruce. He mostly stayed with him, I guess, at the, his home or at the Eagle, which was a leather bar. It's very dark. It's very nice people in there and everything like that. But it is a very good place to hide and be anonymous. 
And and so what was Scandal like when Bruce was around? He was constantly attentive to him. He was constantly trying to console and reassure him that things were fine and that he was not looking at someone else and that he was just with him. At first, I didn't realize what they were arguing about. But after a while, it was happening so often that I would, I could see in his face that he was almost frantic to make sure that he was okay. And Bruce was always looking like he was ready to leave and always like in a service scolding type of way talking down to him. He just he always wanted to make him chase him all the time. So uh, do you think that was jealousy? I think it was his way of control. I kind of faded from him at that point for a little while of hanging out with him. We still played pool, not every day though, honestly. It actually stopped being every day for a while he was with him predominantly. And then all of a sudden I didn't see him, but he was talking about him at the time. Like I was with Bruce. And yeah. I'd be like, what do you see in that guy? Seriously, I kind of like, when he wasn't around, I'd try and give him the gears about him a little bit. And he'd be always like, oh, well, Bruce is this and he's that, but you know, he's got a good heart and he always saw the good in people. Joel was nearing his wit's end. Despite Skanda's insistence, Joel knew that Bruce was bad news. As the weeks went on that summer, Skanda was around less and less. He was with Bruce. Joel made another effort to see his friend, and he showed up for a game of pool. But he quickly had to leave. And then I think he got called by Bruce, and he just left really fast. And I remember thinking, like, this is getting worse, how he's just not even giving a crap. I remember being a little upset with him, actually, in the week or two before, because he was just neglecting everything that he normally does and thinking he can, he can just come back to me because I'm sick of phoning him and trying to set things up, and he's never showing. He's never doing what he said he's going to do. He just changed. He completely changed overnight. Skanda didn't show up for work on Tuesday. His friends couldn't reach him. And when they checked his apartment, they found no sign of him. He had, he had gone to puppy recently. It was a husky. And that thing would go everywhere with him. It was like all of a sudden his new best friend. <laughs> it was a beautiful dog. And the next day when it came about that he wasn't where he was supposed to be all over the place for the entire day, it was brought to our attention that his wallet, ID, and that dog were still sitting at the house. Skanda's friends didn't know what happened, but they knew something was off. They covered the village in missing persons posters. They even searched nearby ravines. Our conversations went from fluff to, so have you heard anything about Skanda? It would go off like that. And when that started, everyone's mood would change. I remember I came down into uh, the play bar. It's, it's a like a bingo dry queen bar. And there's a cork board downstairs of missing people and concerts and events and everything like that on there. And I saw somebody ripping his picture down because they didn't know him. And I took their papers and ripped them in half, all of them, and put his ripped page back up there. And I yelled at them really, really loud. And I said, this is the only thing that matters on here. It was becoming an anger of not knowing. There was just nothing to go on. It was just like he was just picked up off this planet and taken by something, like an alien abduction or something like that, because that's how it just happened. It just The guy was in everybody's life, and he was a major part of this scene. He came from a bunch of different worlds all at once, and he somehow fit into all of them. 
and uh, I should have just watched him more closer. Skandaraj Navaratnam was seen leaving zippers on Sunday night, Labor Day weekend, 2010, after one of those iconic retro nights. I was told he was last seen in a bank, actually, on some bank camera, taking money out with someone else, and they couldn't tell who it was. Oh. Yeah, that's what I was, that's what I was told. Joel says police found security footage of Skanda withdrawing money a few blocks away, shortly after he left the bar. That was the last time he was seen in public. And who, who told you that? I think it was just friends, like really, really close friends that were hearing excerpts from what the police were telling them. So do you remember anything about what they would have said about the other guy that was on the security footage? They, they couldn't see his face. Even like height, build? It had to have been him. I'm guessing. I mean, there wouldn't be no reason for it to be someone else. If he went missing that day, that was the day he went missing for a reason. Joel says that crumb of information is all police shared. When you're dealing with the police and the gay community, there is some hard feelings from once upon a time. We won't forget that. I remember thinking, like, you just don't care because of his his sexuality and whatnot. But I really, I know that they had nothing for the longest time. Joel didn't have any answers as to what had happened. So he had to come up with his own explanation. I had to come to some sort of answer. It was that he had to relocate. And that's where I left Toronto thinking that's, I'm like, that's where I'm going to stay with, that he just is out there someday. He's going to, I'm going to get a message on my Facebook and it's going to say, hey, I'm okay. A 40-year-old man from Sri Lanka vanishes from Toronto's gay village. He leaves behind his wallet and his newly adopted puppy is left without food. He was in a controlling relationship with an older man. It was mysterious, but it was only one case. So Kyle's property sits on a a dirt road, the very end, just on the water. It's pretty secluded. It's a pretty quiet little neighborhood. Kyle Andrews was a transplant in Toronto's gay village as well. He's originally from a small town in Nova Scotia, and that's where I find him. In 200 meters, you will arrive at your destination. When he was in Toronto, he was an activist and a familiar face on Church Street. Now, he's living a quieter life in rural Canada. You have arrived. I used to go to Zippers on Sundays to dance in the back and sort of hang out the other side because I was shy and nervous about dancing until, you know, a good East Coast boy, a couple of rum and cokes and a few beers or shots of something, coolers probably then, and uh, it just felt like when being gay wasn't cool, it was like a camaraderie, it was like the secret club. Shh, don't tell anyone. I'm here because I want to know about Majid Kayon, known to everyone as Hamid. Kyle and Hamid were close, very close. I met Hamid at uh, either the Black Eagle or Timothy's because we had known each other so long. And um, he seemed to be alone and 
I thought he was attractive, so I went up and said hi to him. And uh, over maybe a year and a half, we traded phone numbers and started to hang out. And uh, whenever we'd see each other at the bar, we'd buy each other a drink. Him and I had connected because we were both kind of in the corner by ourselves. Hamid had come to Toronto from Afghanistan. And even though you think Afghanistan, you don't think there was a disco scene, but there was. We would li- be listening to the radio, like Chum FM yeah. would have a lot of 80s hits. And uh, he'd be like, oh, I know this song. And he'd know all the words, but he would know the artist. And he could sing. He could belt out a song quite well. And um, he would play for me some records that he would scrounge up through, you know, friends at the kebab house. Hamid fled Kabul amid war, but found refuge in Canada. When he came to Toronto, he came with his wife and kids. But within a few years, Hamid realized something about himself. He was gay. Well, he had said to me that when he first started to explore who he thought he was as a gay man, he would go to Oakleaf Spa. And that was kind of a mishmash of different cultures and gay and straight things happened. Eventually, Hamid left his family home and moved into the village. He began living his life as a gay man. But still, Hamid struggled to find peace. Because he came all this way to be happy, and he still wasn't happy. He couldn't come out to his family. He couldn't really be himself to everybody that he cared about. And that affected him. Did he ever talk about his wife and kids? I actually met his daughter once and his son. And he was very proud of them. And I think it was just hard for him because he knew quite possibly they wouldn't accept him back if he was true with them. You don't think he ever told them that he was gay? I know that they had suspected because his daughter would ask questions and he would ask me, well, how would I respond? And I told him, well, that's for you to decide. If it was me, I'd say this, but I've been pounding my little gay drum since I was 19. (laughs) And you were 40 some years old coming on to 50 and you're from a strict religious background. And I just, know that that he would feel that was impossible. Hamid spent a lot of time at the Black Eagle. That's probably where he met Bruce MacArthur. Did you see Bruce and Hamid together often? A few times. The second last time I saw Hamid was with Bruce MacArthur in his apartment. Um... And uh, it kind of freaked me out because we were hanging out and uh, some booze and marijuana and we're having a little bit of a good time listening to the radio and being intimate. And uh, Bruce MacArthur comes to the door and Hamid had a couple drinks in him. So I think he uh, didn't expect me to pop in and Bruce was supposed to meet him later. So Bruce came in and was all upset and... He left, and uh, I, and I would have been upset too. You show up at a at a date's house, and there's another date there. You know what's going on. At the time, the interaction didn't mean that much. 
Kyle just went back to Nova Scotia that summer, as he often did. But when he tried to reach Hamid, he couldn't. And then I had left him a shitty voicemail shortly after that, or in the middle of the summer, about how I was pissed off that he uh, wasn't calling me back. I was kind of worried he got into the drugs. Kyle kept trying. When he came back to Toronto that fall, he kept calling. Hamid never answered. The calls went straight to voicemail. So you'd been trying to call him. Even yeah, and I thought, I thought, you know, how it happens in the gay community before Facebook. It used to be a friend would die, you'd never know. Until you'd run into friends at the bar and they'd be like, oh yeah, so-and-so drowned or they died of HIV or cancer or they moved away or whatever. Toronto's queer community has dealt with a lot of loss. LGBTQ people see higher rates of murder and assault. The AIDS epidemic wiped out thousands from the community over decades. And sometimes, people just pick up and leave. Kyle has experienced all of those realities. But when he came back to Toronto a few months later, he was still looking for Hamid. And eventually, he found him. Just not where he expected I was walking down the street, and there's his picture on a telephone pole. It was a Toronto police poster. In the picture, Hamid is wearing a crisp navy suit with a maroon pocket square and a matching tie. His smile is crooked, and his left eyebrow is cocked upwards. His full beard is almost entirely grey. But it wasn't just Hamid's picture on the telephone pole. Next to him, is another Afghan national who had emigrated to Canada, Abdul Basir Faizi. He was known to his friends as just Basir. He was also a regular in the Church Street bars, which was a shock to his wife and children. That's who reported him missing when he didn't come home from work one day. He went missing in December of 2010, just three months after Skanda disappeared. In the picture, Basir is wearing traditional Afghan dress. His salt and pepper goatee matches his black and white tunic. He has a big grin on his face. The third photo was Skanda. Skanda is smirking from underneath a tightly trimmed goatee. He has a gold earring in one ear, and his shirt is open at the top button. The similarities are impossible to ignore. Three middle-aged men all with brown skin, all with facial hair. Above each of their faces, in red block letters, is the word, missing. Well, I saw the poster, and I called my good friend Christian. And I'm like, what the fuck, man? Why wouldn't you tell me this? He goes, well, it's everywhere. It was all over the TV and the news. And uh, I was living in a tent in Nova Scotia when I was there, so... It's like, yeah, he's in some other guys. And I go, serial killer? And he's like, probably. Police from 51 Division were canvassing today, hoping these posters will jog someone's memory in a strange case of three missing men whose only connection seems to be this neighborhood. All three men did not know each other, but they have similar appearances, and they were known to frequent the area. News vans lined Church Street, and reporters set up on the sidewalks, interviewing anyone who walked by about the disappearances. It's hard to 
think that they're not connected somehow by something. Plenty of people saw the connection. Mita Hands is one of them. She's a longtime activist and is well connected in the queer community. Mita invited me to her home just south of the village. She's got a wide smile and she's impossibly friendly. Hey, bro. This is Simba. Come on. What's up? Hey. How are you? Oh, it's excellent. Come on out back. Yeah. All right. We're on Mita's back patio. It is so hot, I have to keep wiping sweat from my forehead. Yeah. I have some tamarind juice. Sure, thank you. Indian drink, it cools you down like nothing else in summertime. Tamarind is... Mita has this wonderful habit. She'll go out of her way to introduce herself to other queer people of color she sees on the street. That's how she met Skanda. And a friend of mine who's also Tamil, we were outside exchanging dog stories, uh, shopping at the market, and Skanda happened to be by. And when you see another brown queer person as a brown queer person, you get really excited, going, oh my God, look, look, there's one more, because we all know each other and recognize each other and watch out for each other. There's that, that level of connection that's instantaneous of knowing each other's struggles and uh, he was lovely and he really liked dogs and, and we started talking, I had a German Shepherd at the time and she really liked him and he was very good with her. He had connections to the community. He had roots here that that's not somebody who would leave. He had given up a lot to become a part of this community. So there's obviously kind of a red flag when, when he didn't show up. Huge red flags everywhere. I mean, you know, I know people I was checking in on when the third person, the second person had gone missing, going, there's a similarity. And you kind of look like that. You're a brown person with a goatee. And be careful. Just be careful. And people don't just leave. They don't get up and leave their apartments. They don't get up and leave their their friends. They don't get up and leave their community that they worked so hard and lost so much to form. That when people go into the village, it's to seek out something that is not available to them anywhere else. People don't get up and, and leave all of that without saying goodbyes. Mita. Kyle, so many others, they all came around to the same conclusion, that something was very wrong here. I think everybody who saw the posters brought up specifically the word serial killer. I remember hearing it, poster, serial killer, poster, serial killer, that this is not chance, this is not a lover's quarrel gone awry, this is a pattern. This is a definitive pattern. But as the community came around to the idea that someone was targeting brown gay men, police were still reticent. Initially, I think the tones were very civil, asking for help, asking for acknowledgement, asking for a spotlight to be shone on this because obviously there's something going on. And when that didn't happen, I think the tone became more urgent and um, more animated. And finally, the tone became very angry of why are you not listening? If we see this is happening, if everybody we know sees that this is happening, how can you not see this? And why are you not seeing this? How can you not see this is exactly how most of the community felt. 
It's exactly how I felt. But the police weren't seeing it. Or if they were, they weren't saying so publicly. This is Officer Tony Vela speaking to queer newspaper Extra in 2013. Those are just the similarities between all three men. Does it mean anything? It's still unclear at this point. It could mean something, but at this point, it's still unclear. The theory that seemed to be driving the police investigation and the media coverage is that these men just took off. Maybe Hamid and Basir went back to Afghanistan, even without their passports. Maybe Skanda just skipped town. Maybe nothing bad happened at all. What we're looking at right now is a missing person investigation. That's what we have. Is foul play suspected? Still unclear. So right now, a task force of officers have been assigned to the investigation. They're following on all different leads, trying to determine exactly what's happened to the three men. And they don't even know each other. Mm. There's no evidence to suggest they even knew each other. So that's what's concerning here. But the key thing is, we're urging anyone that may know who the three men are, if you haven't contacted the police, please give us a call, regardless of if you think the information is relevant or not, but call us, because it could very well be relevant. Kyle did call. He sat down with police to try to help solve his friend's disappearance. The first investigators did an amazing job. Like, they didn't make me feel intimidated. Like, I talked about sex and marijuana and booze and the gay village, and they didn't bad an eye or anything, you want a coffee, you, you know, they were very professional about it. And so, you know, how'd you know Hamid? How well did you know Hamid? Do you know any of his family? Do you, where'd you see him last? What was he wearing? What did he do for work? Uh, where'd he come from? Where'd he go? Where'd you meet? Where'd you spend time? Like a lot of questions. It was about four and a half to five hours I spent with them. Did you mention Bruce's name, or did you say, you know, I remember seeing with I said that the last time I talked with him, and I gave a, a physical description, and I tried to look him up on the internet, and that his name was Bruce, and I didn't know his surname. I gave him uh, not really enough details to track him down, but they had said that they had other people mention, and they, they even tried to lead me on, like, well, do you know what kind of work do you do, like, outside with flowers, or did he mow lawns? was an arborist, so they, somebody else had talked about Bruce, but they didn't have enough juice to go. So one of the first interviews you did, they had said, oh yeah, we know that there's a guy named Bruce who's a landscaper. Yeah, another friend of, of one of the other guys had mentioned Bruce, and they didn't give me enough details, but I mean, uh, one of the other men had dated Bruce. You know, the last time I saw him, that's what happened was when Bruce was there. Kyle sat in that interrogation room and gave police the name Bruce. That piece of information, that name, was a huge tip. Bruce, the landscaper who had dated Skanda. The one who had been seen with Hamid before his disappearance. That could have been the tip that cracked the case. But it didn't. The police task force set up to investigate the three men had a name, Project Houston. As in, Houston, we have a problem. A year and a half after it was started, just months after Kyle sat in that interrogation room, Project Houston was shut down. And in the village, men would continue to go missing. Coming up on The Village. Hello. 
Yeah, so why don't we just dive right in? During the investigation, it was discovered that there was two more missing gay men that had the same characteristics as Skanda. So they had MacArthur on all three of them. The Village is written and produced by me, Justin Ling, Jennifer Fowler, and Aaron Burns. Cecil Fernandez is our audio producer. Sarah Clayton is our digital producer. Additional production on this episode by David McDougall. Tanya Springer is the senior producer of CBC Podcasts, and our executive producer is Arif Narani. To read more about the series or see photos of people in this episode, check out our website at cbc.ca slash uncover, or join our Facebook group Uncover to be part of the conversation. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.